You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. So we um, we actually were just in, uh, where the heck were we actually? Austin. Yeah, we are just in Austin yeah. together. It was kind of yeah. exciting. And we got into, uh, actually, I feel like with you, we've kind of been in this conversation where you are very, seemingly, you have some issues with social media companies mm-hmm. and how they're utilizing data, mm-hmm. which is such in stark contrast to the Dan of episode one. And we were just talking about this a little bit. Dan in episode one was like bright eye, bushy tailed, like social media is going to change everything. Dan yeah. today is like you're harried, you're, um, <laughs> you know, what is going on with you and how is you, how have you shifted? We've come a long way since episode one. I mean, this it was the spring of 2016. A lot of things have happened in the world. A lot of things and, have happened. It has gotten darker. Yeah. And I don't think it's just me. I think, you know, I think there's been a bit of a tech clash, right? Like we were very excited about all the tech companies for a long time. And then some things started happening. We started realizing, you know, everything wasn't all we saw. But in the beginning, I got, I mean, I met people like Michael Milton on That's Twitter. Me. And I found, I found these communities of social studies educators. And so it was very exciting. And I will say like, that still exists, right? Like there's still good things that happen online. And I think I just don't like talk about the good as much. So maybe, maybe tonight we can we can talk about the things you can do with social media, because I feel like all the disinformation, you know, whether it's Russian bots or Internet research agency employees who are like messing with our democracy or whether we're getting into filter and preference bubbles where we isolate ourselves from other people or the ways that cyber violence exists, you know, from bullying with kids to the way I even see some of my you know, some women and colleagues of color who like have to make their Twitter profiles private because they face such, you know, backlash online and targeted harassment. And so, you know, and then I've read a lot of stuff since then about yeah. algorithmic bias. I think the biggest thing for me is the the social media companies are, are businesses. And I just like don't know if I didn't process that at the beginning. And so their goal is to make a profit. Unfortunately, some of the things they make profits on like aren't good for us. My school went all in on Google, um, like top to bottom, soup to, soup to nuts. I think that's the phrase. Uh, do people <laughs> eat nuts that. at the end of meals? Is that like how that thing works? I don't even, is that a real phrase? Are you sure that's what it is? <laughs> I'm fairly certain soup to nuts is a big thing, but our, our school went because it was free. And so, so yeah, I mean, in Google is again, Google, um, I always say they, they kind of get out of all of the criticism because they actually have like a good product. Like everyone's kind of frustrated with Facebook on some sense, you know, um, once they, their, their uncle, I always use, it's always the crazy uncle. Maybe that's too gendered. There's crazy ants too, right. Who post negative things and you're like, Oh, I'm so mad at the world. And that's not true. Um, I was just talking, spent some time with a friend this weekend and he was saying that his uncle had posted um, that there, he's like, didn't you know there was seven? There's seven million Irish slaves in the United States right now. Right now, yes, right now. This is not wasn't historical, which also, by the way, would not be true either. Right, right, yeah. And he could not convince him this wasn't true, and this is like ridiculous nonsense. Um, and I think his point was to 
um, say, why are we talking about black slavery? And he was like, I don't know what to do. My friend was like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, it's such an absurd disinformation that like, how do you even convince someone that such a like we would know if there were seven million Irish slaves in the U.S. Right. Is that when so. you just gift like a tinfoil hat? Yeah. And I don't know if that works either. Then, it, then you know, you just get called like liberal and then it becomes partisan. Oh, you just don't like my Irish slave conspiracy theory because it's because of your partisanship. So, oh my so I think that's why that's that's why things have gone in a bad direction, you know, as we've had, you know, some negative experiences. And I don't remember those existing as much like eight to 10 years ago. I feel like we need an update on what's happening with social media and education. That is a good segue into our guests that we have today. Uh, so we would like to welcome into the podcast, Dr. Christine Greenhow. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Dr. Greenhow, do you mind talking to us a little bit about your background in education? How did you get here? Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, I got here in a very roundabout way. Coming out of college, I was always told that I should go into teaching because I seem to love to help my fellow classmate learn things. And I just, lo I just love teaching. But I thought, you know, I want to do something else. And so after college, I went into business and management consulting. And after a few fits and starts with that, I really thought that, you know, people were right. <laughs> teaching was what was calling me. And so I became a high school English teacher for several years in the Boston area. And at that time, I'm in the Boston area. Are you really? Where? Yes. I, I teach in uh, uh, Burlington, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Yeah, I taught uh, so down, I guess it's, in it's, Bentham. Okay, yes. I do, I do. There's the, the big mall that everyone goes to. That's right, exactly. Not to be negative, but Amazon's probably killing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, I'm a lot older than you. And when I was teaching English in high school in the Rentham, Massachusetts area, Schools were just getting wired for the internet. That's how old I am. <laughs> but basically, that experience of teaching with this new technology, the internet, and being called upon as a new teacher to do professional development for my more experienced colleagues, I was asking myself, what do I know about integrating the internet into teaching? And what does the research say? And in looking for best practices in the research space at that time, I just wasn't seeing what I was after. And it made me want to go and get a PhD. Uh, how are teachers using the Internet? In fact, my dissertation was a qualitative case study of how constructivist teachers use the Internet in various subject matters. So that's kind of how I got to technology and education broadly and the more I studied the teachers, the more I understood that really what was motivating at least the teachers I was studying is what kids were doing. So when I came out of my PhD program, kids were on social media. And that made me think about, more about turning my research attention to students today, what technologies are pervasive in their lives, and how are they using these technologies, mostly outside of school, that we as educators could take away some insights about using these technologies more thoughtfully in school. So basically building on what the kids were doing and what they wanted to do in classrooms. When Snapchat was first a thing, my goal was to kill Snapchat. And so I made that a class assignment in which they would Snapchat at a teach, the teacher account. They would Snapchat like in 15 seconds or whatever and answer to a question. My goal was to kill it. 
Uh, I never did. I actually, it, I, I was, I failed pretty quickly. Uh, <laughs> you can give it another shot with TikTok now. I hear things about that, but I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's funny. TikTok has been, there's, it's been in the news a lot because people are concerned because it's owned by a Chinese company. And so what are they going to do with all our, all the silly videos and stuff people put on there? Um, it's kind of like new Vine. It's like Vine, you know, a little bit crazier, I guess. So it, it is interesting, um, Dr. Greenhow, how I think a lot of people in our field, because you and I run with similar circles of researchers and people trying to figure out social media. And I think a lot of us came to it in that similar way, just like we wanted this social media came along. And it's not like we had the preparation for like we got to do, you know, years of preparation and write our, you know, in my case, I didn't write my dissertation on it. And I kind of just started to gradually learn more and more. How have you found like your own career evolving, trying to better understand social media and, and the role it has in, you know, for students and, and in schools? I think I've become a lot more critical, Dan, actually. And partly you and your work has turned me on to that. But I also have been listening to the editorials coming out in some of our top journals, like British Journal of Educational Technology, saying that our field is really tired of victory narratives, is what they call them, which is these reports, articles we write and publish in our journals where we pat ourselves on the back and say all the wonderful things that we're doing with technology, how well it's working, when really we should be more about the complexities and the downsides and the dark sides of social media and how the technology might be using us, which I think is a, is a piece of our educational technology conversation that has been missing and, and which I'm more tuning into these days. So I would say definitely a more critical approach. And I'm also, you know, I started in this business of being interested in social media and, and education as a sort of counter to the simplistic narrative I was reading about in the newspapers. Oh, technology, oh, social media is, is all bad. You know, we're a bunch of narcissists on social media. <laughs> There's nothing good here. There's nothing certainly of educational value. It's just really a waste of time. And so I and others were tired of reporters and people outside of the field of education telling us what our kids were or were not learning with social media without any kind of research evidence. So that's how I sort of got into this interest. And, in, well, you know, if we really put together systematic research on some of these questions, what would we find? Would we find anything of educational value and what kids are doing with social media. And I think many of us have found things both valuable with what the kids are doing, but also what the teachers are doing, as well as many challenges and downsides of social media. So I think a more nuanced conversation is what I'm really excited about these days. I agree. I, um, whenever I run workshops with teachers, regardless of where I feel, I feel like I always, first thing I always say is if you're going to talk to your students about social media, start with their own experiences and start with a sense of respect because otherwise you're just kind of, you know, the standing on the lawn, get off my lawn kids, like giving them the lecture about social media is bad. And if they, if parts of their identity and social relationships are, are tied up in social media, um, then disregarding that is disregarding them in a way. And so I know that one of the books that really first helped me think from that perspective, and I'm sure a lot of people in our field was Dana Boyd's It's Complicated. Um, and her book really was, she actually listened to kids, which, by the way, is just good advice for educators in general. It's like, listen to what they have to say and what it means to them. And her first story in that book is about, um, you know, how kids are like at a football game 
and they're, they've got their phones out, but they're actually using them very socially together. They're showing each other stuff. They're talking, they're conversing, they're doing stuff. And then she looked over at the parent section and when they have their phones out, they're like not talking to each other. They're just looking at stuff. And so she just pointed out like, maybe we don't understand the way kids use social media. And so I think that's such a great place to start is to understand and try to do that. And then maybe we can go from there and identify some of the possible problems and challenges and things. And kids can identify a lot of those themselves. I mean, I think sometimes they don't love their relationships, all of their relationship with social media. And so sometimes maybe we could have them critically think through how important is that snap streak to you, right? You know, that trick to get you on there every single day to validate your relationship. Is that the thing that you think? And maybe just getting them to think about those things can be helpful. Oh, we were talking about it a couple of years ago with my students, and they said that they don't talk to each other at lunch because they're on their phones. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk about that for a little bit. And so we talked about, well, we talked about making sure that we're conversing with other people. But it was interesting because they were, coming from them, they were a little bit, they felt isolated, but not isolated at the same time because they were like on their phones with each other. It was an interesting conversation that day. That is interesting because, you know, in the, I don't want to say the early days, but somewhat the early days of the internet, people like, I'm going to get the researcher, I think it was Joe Walther, actually, who the fear was that the internet was isolating us, right? And he actually, I believe it was Joe Walther, uh, it might have been Barry Wellman, talked about how they disagreed and said, actually, the internet was making us hyper-social, hyper-connected. It just, it looks differently because it's not we're not sitting down physically across the table from each other conversing. Don't know what you think about that, but I like that idea of you know it's maybe not it's a it's complicated. It's not as simplistic as we want to make it out to be. Well, I so I actually grew up in probably the first generation that really had computers in schools nearly from the beginning. I mean, we were just getting them in schools in the mid '80s, and. We did a lot of the things actually that I think have been romanticized. I remember being in labs, like trying to learn computer code, like logo. I think if I remember right, was it? I've heard people talk about that's the stuff we should be doing with kids. And I'm like, I remember it being kind of boring and not understand why we were doing it. Like, because I didn't feel like at the end of it, I knew what I was doing. But that may have also been I didn't get good explanations and like didn't get good context around how this all worked. But then it was a lot of Oregon Trail. And uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Those are the two key games that I think my generation remembers. I did the um, but, paint, like my there was just yes. paint, and I would do that a lot too. It's so interesting. I listened to a podcast recently where they were talking about just how different our different our phones are, and as they started reminding me, like what they were like in the '90s, you know, when you had one line and someone had to get off, and you got on the internet, and somebody else got on the phone, it kicked you off the internet. And I started having all these flashbacks to like fights with my sisters about, like, you know, mom, you knew I was on the internet. She's like, I've got a call though. And it's so all of these interesting things. But AOL, you know, it's interesting because I think we, again, romanticize that AOL was not like this perfect place. Like AOL Messenger, there was all kinds of crazy stuff happening there, but we negotiated it as teens, right? I think me and my friends, we understood and it didn't turn us into terrible people, even though there was pretty bad stuff like on AOL Messenger. But it was it was similar to a modern day social media in some ways. One of the ideas that I've been writing on, in addition to in addition to studying young people's use of social media largely outside of school, I've been inspired by the way students today are using social media to forge new 
communication and dissemination channels. And I'd like to take inspiration from them and turn the spotlight on ourselves as researchers. How might we take social media to forge new communication dissemination channels? So I've been writing about something called social scholarship, which is a novel form of scholarship where we take up social media to disseminate and gather audiences for our research. I'm not the only one that writes on new forms of scholarship with digital media. So I want to do a shout out to George Valencianos, who talks about networked participatory scholarship. Others talk about open scholarship or digital scholarship. But it's the idea that we as scholars in the work of doing scholarship, we often think about disseminating our work through journals and through journals that are closed usually to the public without a subscription. But, you know, our students are finding all different ways to use the technology, the internet and social media to get their ideas out to multiple audiences. So why can't we do the same as scholars? So George and others, um, we've taken traditional views of, of scholarship, like, you know, as researchers, we don't just do pure research, right? We also do, we study educational phenomena, but we also study our teaching, what we call scholarship of teaching. Uh, we get smarter by studying our own teaching practices. We do what we call scholarship of application, where we work with the public to do research together, working with stakeholders to design studies and collect data. And then we do integration scholarship, where we in education might work with people in computer science, communications, and other fields to do interdisciplinary scholarship. So my point is, we do multiple kinds of scholarship, and people like uh, Robert Boyer, he had this notion of the four dimensions of scholarship, discovery, teaching, application, and interdisciplinary that, that I just mentioned. But we've often talked about that scholarship as being, you know, getting into the hands of the public through journals. But what about social media? I wanted to um, put forth this idea of social scholarship as a way we might re-envision these different dimensions of scholarship with social media practices. Yeah, I really like that notion of, of social scholarship because part of the problem is our journals are closed access, right? Which is a it's, a, it's almost like a mistake of history. It's kind of outdated because journals originally were created to disseminate knowledge. Well, the internet came along and made knowledge available and the journals were like, newspapers didn't know how to adapt. And so they put up closed firewalls, right, like around the, the scholarship. And so we've really defeated the purpose of scholarship, which needs to be available. And then there's other problems that scholars often don't don't write in accessible ways for the public. Um, and that's kind of the purpose often of practitioner articles, which we've host a lot of practitioner articles on this podcast, which is meant to be digestible. I mean, most people don't have time to read 20 page, thick, dense articles. So we need to produce stuff in ways that are readable. And so I, I really appreciate that. But a lot of the scholars I do learn from actually, for all my critique of social media, you know, I've curated my little lists of people who are doing like innovative work and really on the edge of, of addressing a lot of the concerns and problems in social media. And so I have a list that I've curated and I have it as a tab on my tweet deck. And it's, it's about all of these new scholars. I learn so much every day from them and follow their articles and follow their research. And they've done a great job of really sharing what they're doing through a medium like Twitter. And sometimes they link to their sites or articles 
But I do get a lot of knowledge there. And so I really appreciate they do that. And I guess that's what matters if we want to have an actual impact, right, in our field. Yeah, and I see that as sort of the next generation of, I got I have to say, as someone who I really believe in this idea of promoting ourselves, not just through journal articles, but using social media to make our work accessible, to have a conversation with the public. On the other hand, I find it very difficult to actually do what I talk about, given all of the demands on our lives and the fact that when we do these more alternative forms of disseminating our research, often it's not valued by our own colleagues, by our institutions. You know, we're measured on where we publish our impact, you know, our citations, our impact factor or the impact factor of our journals. So the fact that you might have a thousand downloads on an article or you're tweeting out an article might have generated uh, a thousand retweets isn't really factored into performance reviews. So anyway, I, I when I see other scholars doing it really well, I'm really inspired knowing that I believe in this in principle, but in practice, it can often be difficult, especially when it's not rewarded in our work. It's the same for teachers, right? I feel that teachers, you know, this line between who, who does scholarship and has wisdom in the field, you know, often that's part of this podcast is to bring those conversations together. Michael, how do you feel about that? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of teachers who impart quite a bit of wisdom and they just do it from their own goodwill. It'd be interesting to see, is there a way that we like reward it institutionally? I don't know. What are your thoughts? That's interesting. So I feel like there are, I mean, it really depends on the school. I guess you can put it in your evaluation because there's different things. I don't really feel like it's, it is valued so to speak. Uh, it should be sure, sure. It should being able to, you know, set your ideas out to other people talk and then refund. I think that definitely should be rewarded. But then I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, what the word do you, what reward is the... sounds very like I just that's a very strange right. term for, for honored, term. maybe honored. Sure. Just that because you can I mean, you know, you bring a lot of you do a lot in the field with this podcast, Michael. And, oh, you. Um, you know, for me, I've, I've tried to tell my institution when they review who I am, I try to tell them this is important. And it, it doesn't really, you know, they may make mention of it, but it's not a real part of my tenure decision or anything like that. But I mean, I think it's really your school should see you as an asset because you really are helping to do work in the field. I oh, mean, thank you. In this. I mean, I think so. You know, I did write an article with um, Jeff Carpenter and Tory Trust where we made the argument that administration could consider like honoring this type of work as teachers bring it back into their school when they when they do work, um, whether it's participating at ed camps or participating in Twitter chats, that when they're able to bring that knowledge back into their schools kind of serves as bridges between these these spaces online and communities online and or in other spaces and come back to their schools, that that should be kind of a form of something that can be honored, right, and recognized sure. by the school. Presenting at like a national conference should also be rewarded too, some are acknowledged somehow, but it, it, I mean, it's not really always yeah. the case. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and with, uh, so with us as scholars, as researchers, you know, I'm at a land grant institution. So our mission is to do research on important problems and get that research into the hands of the public so it can shape people's lives. So we are, you know, we have a real public service mission behind our very existence. And so part of it is recognition in terms of using social media to get your research out there. 
But part of it is also having a dialogue or a conversation with other, in your case, Michael, maybe it's teachers. In my case, maybe it's teachers and other scholars and students where we can get feedback on their their relevancy, their authenticity, their quality, rather than doing our research in a vacuum where we're only talking to this small little cadre of people. So I, I, I like the possibilities of situating the work we do in this larger public sphere, what Yoki Benkler calls networked publics, right? To get more feedback on what we're doing so that, again, we can do work that, that matters. It's interesting you say that because I feel like some areas have really made this really more part of all their work. And I was just reading an article today from our university where historians had worked with their students to really uncover and do research around black communities that had existed in the area and had kind of disappeared over time. And the idea, the thinking behind it was that oftentimes that they left for economic opportunities. But increasingly, this group actually found that obviously there was a lot of uh, they were able to link. Um, lynchings and physical violence to these arrests. And so they started to realize that the city of Pilot Point, which is near here, um, probably a lot of the black community left that town because, and it was like an all black town, they left because of the violence. And so they did that. But they also, one of the things they, they ended up finding along their way was this house that was a one room schoolhouse that no one knew that was about to be torn down. And they went to the city council meeting and argued for it to stay. So I'll, I'll put that article in there, but it's very fascinating because throughout this, they had this real component of activism and, and they really wanted to preserve this cemetery where a lot of the residents had been from that community. And so they did all these things in the world. And I, I think all of us need to do that. And I've, I don't know, in my own teaching, I've been thinking so much lately about how much we sit and talk about things and the curriculum almost distances us from the real problems of our world. And so I've been thinking a lot about Paulo Freire's liberatory education, where we are in communication and dialogue with our students to figure out what are the things that we care about and want to change that are unjust in the world. And let's spend time learning about and doing things. And it's hard. It's hard in schools to do it. And I think it's the same way we are in a model in higher ed where we often it's the publications, you know, they get us and that distances us sometimes from the work we'd probably rather do that's more meaningful. So I love this concept of social scholarship to bring us back to those purposes. So with that in mind of bringing uh, scholarship to uh, New Year's, what are some things that you've been working on recently that you would like to get to the broader audience? Sure. So we have uh, so a number of things. One, we have a piece on social scholarship, sort of take two, that just came out in British Journal of Educational Technology in uh, earlier this year, this summer. But I'm really ex- also really excited because our American Educational Research Association funded a conference on social media and education where we brought a number of leading experts in the world, Dan Krutka being one of them, Whoa, to, come to, <laughs> to come to Michigan State and have a meeting of the minds where we could talk about all this wonderful work we, we are doing in education and educational policy uh, teacher education, communication around social media and education internationally writ large. And from that conference gathering or convening of over 100 people, both online and in person, uh, we have two major issues coming out, one in Teachers College Record and one in American Journal of Education that feature a number of really interesting articles 
that came out of our conversations at that conference. So I don't know, Dan, you want to talk about the piece that we worked on? Sure. And it was it was such a cool event that they were able to get funding to bring us together. You know, I think conferences often are so big when you go to them, it's you, you're just trying to take so much in. But this was set up as very social experience where we got together and we had a whole day really to talk and learn from each other. And, and I was starting to think about some of these problems. And I remember I we had pay, big paper at the tables and I just made like an anarchy A and I wrote like a thing like teaching against social media. And I think the point I was trying to make is like teaching against the problems of it. So we ended up putting the against in quotes. But we we have an article that came out with a group of scholars who I should recognize because they all do incredible work. Stefania Monka, Sarah Galvin, obviously Dr. Greenhow, Matthew uh, Kaler and Amelia Escari. And so we wrote an uh, article for that issue called Teaching Against Social Media, Confronting Problems of Profit in the Curriculum. And we really just addressed a few specific items that we think are things that often go ignored when educators use or think about kind of social media. And so some of the the topics that we identified um, were, without going in too much depth on this now, and you can read the articles, that we were concerned with how the profit motives of social media corporations compromise transparency, equity, health, safety, and democracy. And so we address all of those things in it. So for example, with democracy, we're looking at political disinformation or political warfare, any of those issues that threaten democracy with health. It's about how social media um, can be addictive. I use that, I, I always do air quotes because I don't think people, I don't think that clinic, clinical psychologists would ne- necessarily say it's addiction, but how it can be kind of obsessive and you can get in these compulsion loops. So we we addressed all those things and just how it's hard to know what's having going on with with the user agreements being very vague, it's hard to know if your data is being collected and what it's being used for. So things like that, that if you are going to use social media and education, you should address them. So we can link that article up too. Great. It was great. It was great to work with you all on that, to think through that, because we at the beginning had some ideas, but didn't have answers. So we all had to kind of do some digging, I think, to get that paper to, to the end. Once it is available on Teachers College Record Online, we can we will share it out on our social media channels and do our own social scholarship. And I hope that everyone will read it and think about both how we can use the technology, but also how the technology is using us. That's nice. (laughs) And we will be sure in the show notes to get some links to where you can find all of Dr. Greenhouse's work. Um, We can get linked to your Google Scholar page and some other places. So people can find it because you've done a lot. You've got books. You've got lots of articles. You've been doing a lot of work and we want people to be exposed to it. So thanks for all the work you've done for the field. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Greenhow, for chatting with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Now, where can our listeners find you and your work online? They can find me at cgreenhow.org which has an updated list of my publications and the things that I'm working on. I also post my blog entries on my website uh, and share them out on social media, but I haven't done that in a while. So when this podcast comes out, I'll have something else I would like to blog about. Oh my We're going to hold you to that. And what, right. what's your Twitter handle so people can follow you and get those updates? Yeah, it's Chris Greenhow. Oh, so at Chris Greenhow. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. And we certainly hope to continue the discussion online, on your blog, and on Twitter. And don't worry about all the data collection, just at least for Dr. Greenhouse Twitter, <laughs> Twitter page. That's okay. 
Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun in creative education or you just want to tweet us, hit us up on the Twitter. We're also on Facebook and, of course, in that mystery place that I forget again where I signed us up for. It might be Pinterest, but it might be something different. And, of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. Bonus points if you sign up on all of those. <laughs> I think it's TikTok. I think you signed us up on TikTok. <laughs> that was... Where is like, where is Waldo? Where is Carmen Santiago? Where is, yeah, there we where go. is that? <laughs> where is that mystery place? Dogs. We mentioned it once. Right. We mentioned it once. Who knows? Doesn't everyone have accounts they don't realize, of remember course. what they've signed up for? Yes. So password managers, folks, your password manager, managers help you keep track of it. Yeah. If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Geek. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing, signing off. off.